Good day, church. It's good to be with you and good to share God's word with you. What a wonderful song um, from the Lord for us uh, that we've just sung that really opens up a wonderful passageway for us to look at this psalm this morning, Psalm 123. So if you have your Bibles, won't you open up to Psalm 123. And uh, we're continuing our journey this morning through our series called Songs of Salvation where we are looking at these psalms. And the reason why we've called this series Songs of Salvation is they are a wonderful way of seeing how these saints of old worked out their faith in the very grit and grime of human experience. It's faith with flesh on, and they are so personal, they are so honest, they are so human. And again, we're going to look at an inside track of a, of a man's heart who wrote this psalm in a time of deep distress, Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> and I'm going to read it for us this morning. It's just three, ver four verses, and they are just beautiful. And I'm hoping that the Lord is going to help us get everything we can from this moment of writing in this man's life. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you, to you, to you I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh, our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Yahweh, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Today we're going to be looking at the connection between our faith and what we focus on. And friends, it's good for us to recognize the times we live in. We are living in great uncertainty, and it's nothing new in history, and I encourage you all to read history regularly. There are these crescendos these peaks of angst that happen throughout the story of humanity. And I think that we are climbing one at the moment. And we, we are uncertain as a human race about the future. We are uncertain about the areas of finance personally and, and nationally. We are even uncertain about our friendships. I was saying to Marina uh, this last week and to some friends, every year a group of friends leave East London. And I'm getting used to having catch-up calls in Australia as a regular experience. We're concerned about our family's future. Will our children have work? Will we have work? Will they have an education? Will there be universities to go to? And perhaps what is even closer to home, which we've never had to process before, certainly in our lifetime, is will the living out of our faith, the faith of the God of the Bible, be tolerated and embraced freely in our nation heading into the future? These are big things, and they affect us. And we're not immune to these concerns and these uh, and this analysis of the times we're in is and, and we and in, in, in as Christians and we don't ignore them as Christians that's very important but but how we choose to respond to them is what we're going to look at today and the choice that we make in how we choose to respond towards uncertainty has a massive impact on our faith and in Psalm 123 this author is giving us a master class on how to process distress. The people of God in Psalm 123 are suffering terribly. They are post-exile. If you remember what happened to this nation of Israel, they were so humbled in about 586 or 587 BC. Nebuchadnezzar rocked up with his army of Babylonians and he wiped out their temple. He wiped out the city walls and he exiled Israelites to this great city of Babylon. And these Israelites were far away from home. But eventually what happened was, by the grace of God, and you read in, in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that the Israelites were allowed to return to their homeland. And about 50,000 Israelites in waves of immigration started to return to rebuild their temple and to rebuild their city and their nation. And friends, if you read the story of, of Esther, and Ezra and Nehemiah, you will notice how difficult a time they had. At every point, 
God's people faced opposition, hatred, contempt, even genocide. In the book of Esther, the very existence of the nation of Jews was, was at risk. And simply for being followers of Yahweh. And if you look at the psalm, I love its honesty because in verse 3 and 4, listen to what he says. He says, have mercy upon us, O Yahweh, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. They've had it. They've had their full. He goes on to say, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. It was almost too much for him to bear. Have you ever been like that? When you say to the Lord, I can't take this anymore. You have to do something. We've had more than enough. We've had our full of this situation. And the joy of this Psalm 123 is that it's part of these songs of ascent. And uh, what, what they were was, they were sung every year by Israelites. They would ascend up Mount Zion, the hill in which Jerusalem was built on and the whole nation three times a year would head off to Jerusalem to worship for the various festivals and feasts in Jerusalem but they would sing these songs and it is a song that we are to sing when we are in distress Psalm 123 is to be in the forefront of our minds and the joy of this psalm is it's the easiest to find you know how you find it you take a breath and you count to three one two three Psalm 123 you've got it you know exactly where to go. It's your lifeline. It's your 911, Psalm 123. And I want to show you why it's such a beautiful lifeline for us in times of distress and difficulty. And I'm going to open up with my first point. I haven't got many today, but they're really important for us to grasp. And my first point today is that we see in this Psalm that our primary need in difficulty is not resolving the situation but having a clear view of God who is ruling over it. I want to say that again. It's so helpful for us. Our primary need, your primary and my primary need in difficulty and perplexity and distress is not resolving the situation, but having a clear view of God who is ruling over it. And I want to invite you to see how the psalmist decides to respond firsthand to this distress in his life. He opens up and he says, To you... Oh, to you I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Notice, he doesn't fix his eyes on the problem first. That comes in verse 3. Is he starts fixing his eyes on who God is. And, and friends, we're not talking, this man is not talking about having a sore toe or having a grumpy boss. It is literally the existence of his family and nation at, at stake. He's processing big stuff, but he does not decide to fix his eyes on what the situation is. He goes and fixes his eyes first and foremost on who God is. Now, it sounds like it's so simple, not so. It sounds like ABC stuff, sub A, grade one. But it's not so easy. And the reason why it's not so easy for us is because we don't like discomfort and insecurity and difficulty as human beings. And the primary thing that drives us in trouble is to try and get out of it. The emotional and mental energy that we put, is we, or the direction that we put it in, is to try and find a solution, to try and find a contingency plan so that we can somehow avoid impending trouble or get out of it. And so our energy and our fixation and our focus is actually more on the problem because we believe if we can just sort the problem out. If we can just understand it and, and, and make a contingency plan to avoid it, we'll be okay. We'll be able to resolve the angst and we'll be able to be back at peace. But the problem is it doesn't help. Do you notice something interesting about this psalm? I don't like the way it ends. When you read it, it's like, so what happens next? Do you know what he ends? He says, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. You know, when I, when I read it, I was, so where's the next part of the story? You see, the, the way that this man processes and finds his peace is not in the outcome. There is no outcome in this psalm. We don't know how God answers. We don't know what the end of this whole journey for him is. 
where he's finding his peace, where he's finding his place of rest, where he's finding his place of confidence, is not in the finished outcome of the situation, but in the God who is always the same and watching over it. Do you know what the joy of being a Christian is? It's being led by a God who never changes. And so our hiding place, our refuge, is secure regardless of whether there is resolution or not to the angst we are facing. And I want to say today, the opening of this psalm is this opening line of, to you I lift my eyes. The key that unlocks the blessing of this psalm is where the psalmist chooses to fix his eyes. Can I say to you this morning, the true perspective of a matter is only found when it is framed in who God is. We don't see clearly what the situation is really like until we frame it in who God is. Now, in saying that this morning, we are making a big assumption is that we know something of who God is. What good is it to try and fix your eyes on something you don't know or recognize? Ever try to do that? I had to, this, I had this week, we were, our breakfast table looks out onto the horizon over the sea. It's a beautiful little gap between trees. And there's ships that pass along the horizon. And I say to Elijah, look, there's a ship on the horizon. Can you see it? And it's, it's silhouetted. It's there. But he doesn't know what it looks like or where to find it. And he's looking. He's like, I can't see the ship. I have to show him. Do you see that little line? Do you see that little funnel? Do you see that little glyph? That's what a ship looks like. That's a traveling on the horizon to the harbor. He couldn't find it because he didn't know what it looks like. I ask you this morning, do you know something of God? Friends, if you don't know who he is, how do you know what to look for? How do you know what you're looking at? And this psalmist, he's certain He's certain who this God is. He knows this God. His knowledge of God is fixed in the character and unchanging purpose and ways of this God of heaven and earth. And I want to show you this morning how just one glimpse of this God of glory changes your life. How just one aspect of understanding who this God is fuels this man's faith in a way that it seems to just be a never-ending source of blessing and courage any situation of need. Do you notice that this man opens up with a you are statement in the psalm? He says, to you I lift up my eyes, O Lord. It says, O you who are enthroned, O you who are enthroned. He is making a statement of who God is. He's starting there. He knows something about God. He knows something about the character and nature of this God of the Bible. And he's fixing his faith. He's resting his faith. He's fixing his eyes on who this God is. He knows him. I ask, do you? Friends, you and I know what it's like to give ourselves to be competent in so many areas of life. In hobbies, in work, in sports, in studies. We give so much attention and time to being ambitious and competent in areas of life. I ask you this morning, do you have an ambition to know God? I want to remind us that at the end of the ages, it will not be our PhDs, it will not be the number of novels we've read, it will not be how well we can make cakes and bread, not be how fit and, and perfect our bodies are, what will matter and that day is how much we have gotten to know God and lived it out in every area of our lives. It always troubles me when Jesus says in Scripture, one of the, the judgments of the parables, is, he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. And I must be honest, I am so stirred in, this, in my own life when I think about Philippians 3 verse 8. I've used it almost blushingly, so glibly in my life in preaching. But when Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss, just think about that for the moment. He, he downgrades everything in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, his Lord. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I, 
I think there are two things that are motivating Paul in this, is, is his delight in being with Jesus. Let me tell you, the more we give ourselves to knowing this God of the Bible, revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ, the more you just realize there's nothing better on planet Earth. But there's something else that Paul realizes, and he prays for the church over and over, that they would come to know God, to know this love of Christ, to encounter him. It is this. Friends, today we need to realize that faith is rooted in the soil of knowing who God is. Faith is rooted in the soil of knowing who God is. And the root can only go as deep as the soil it is planted in. I will say it again. Your roots of faith in your life can only go as deep as you know God. Don't be surprised in the day of the flood when the plant is washed away because the root is just below the surface. A shallow knowledge of God leads to a shallow faith. But I want to say to you today, if you will give yourself to this glorious knowledge of this God, even just a glimpse of Him, even just a, a, an incremental increase in your understanding of Him has an exponential effect on your faith. You cannot look at the world your life in the same way again when you catch a greater glimpse of God. And I, I'm not asking you to go study theology. I don't even think it's much of a help. I'm not asking you to be bookish nerds who study all these degrees and know God in an abstract way. No, no. Do you pick up in the psalm how close this man is to God? When he says, to you, he's not saying, to the Lord, I lift up my eyes, or to God. He's not talking about God in an abstract way. He's talking about God in the singular, in the personal pronoun of, to you, to you, I lift up my eyes. And look at that, oh, oh, you who, have, who are enthroned in the heavens. Whenever you see that word, oh, in the Hebrew, it is an expression of the heart. He knows this God. He loves this God. It is, this isn't the knowledge that comes from merely a book. It comes from the voice and presence and encountering of this living God in living ways coming to this man in living wonderful experiences. I ask you today, will you accept the greatest invitation of your life to know God? To know Him personally. Isn't it wonderful that verse 2 in this psalm implies the closest intimacy with this God of the Bible? It says, Behold, as the eyes of a servant, or the eyes of servants, look to the hand of their master, so we look to the Lord our God. Do you know how close a servant has to be in order to see the hand of the master? Right there, in the room is just a few feet away, this servant is close enough to his master to see the flurry of the hand. Now in the Middle East, that's how masters communicated. They did not take the time to use their voice. The servant was expected to be so close, so attentive, so in the presence of the master, that just by a flurry of the master's hand, the servant was summoned. That is the level of intimacy that God is calling us to. It is the most wonderful. Why would the God of heaven and earth want to know me, want to know you, want us to know him? Let me tell you, I can't figure it out, but I don't need an academic answer. My heart says I want it. And this morning I'm asking, do you want it? Forget about the degrees. Forget about the applause of your colleagues. Forget about all of the ministry success or the calling upon your life. Let me tell you, the thing that we must downgrade everything else to in comparison is the glory of knowing this God. It is life-changing. Can I show you just how one aspect, one aspect of this man grasping who God is changes him? Oh, well, let's look at it today. Verse 1. He says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. He's learned that this God is enthroned in heaven the heavens. Now, what does that mean? He's learned that this God being enthroned in the heavens means this God is in authority. He's the king of creation. He's enthroned. But do you notice he, he says he's enthroned in the heavens, not the earth? He could have, 
the nations belong to God. But he says, no, no, this God isn't enthroned on planet Earth. He's enthroned in the heavens. And by seeing this, let's look at it this morning, how it expands his faith, how it gives him such a bedrock to rest his life on. Do you know the profoundness of God being enthroned in the heavens, what it means for you and me today and what it means for the psalmist? Is that this God can see the beginning and the end. When you are up in the heavens, he, you have a bird's eye view. You see the start of things. You see the end. We even say, just take a step back. Have a look at the big picture. Let me tell you, God sees the big picture. And whatever distress we find ourselves in, whatever point of history in God's trajectory for planet Earth, we know that He sees the start and He sees the end. And what a joy to submit our lives to the one who sees it all. Well, what about this? He's enthroned in the heavens, which means he has the power to suspend the planets and solar systems and to keep the universe in its place. Have you ever marveled when you've gone outside and looked at the stars and how beautifully they are arranged in their constellations? And every night you go out and they are rotating in perfect unison, in perfect posture, in perfect place. Friends, if he can arrange the stars, don't you think he can arrange your life? If he has the power to lift up planets and sustain them and bear them up, don't you think he has the power to lift and sustain you up? Can you feel this man's faith growing as he sees the God who is enthroned in the heavens? And he says to himself, come on, soul. Come on, didn't you see the sun this morning rise up? It comes up faithfully every day. It goes down every night. The moon comes out every day. God's faithfulness is bringing forth the sun and the moon and the stars and the rotations of the planets. If he's so consistent in the heavens, don't you think he'll be consistent in the earth? He goes on to say, this God who arranges our, our planet around the, the sun, you might not have known all of this, but let me tell you one thing he did realize was the effect that even God rules over time. The very orbit around planet, of planet Earth around the sun means that there are so many minutes of so many hours and so many days, and there are seasons. And because the Lord is enthroned in the heavens, He's God of time and He's God of seasons. And if He can overrule and rule in the universe... How much more in your life? How much more is this God in control of your time and your seasons? Or how about this? If this God who's enthroned in the heavens is the sustainer of all life, this power and energy coming from the sun, giving the energy that, that this world needs to live, if he can sustain the whole of planet earth, don't you think he can sustain your life? How about his infiniteness? When this psalmist looks at the God enthroned in the heavens, he sees a God who rules over an ancient universe. That's much older than little old me. That generation after generation has passed through. And this God has seen it all. His wisdom is eternal. His knowledge is eternal. Don't you think it's wonderful to entrust your life to a God who's much older and wiser and outlasting anything that's ever been created? Don't you think he's competent to help direct your life because of his infiniteness? Well, how about this? Don't you think it's amazing that when the psalmist looks up and he says, God, you are enthroned in the heavens, he's marveling at God's mystery. Can you understand the universe? Scientists don't even understand a smidgen of it. They can't even fully explain black holes. Do you think you can understand God and his ways? Are you competent to judge and criticize his wisdom and power? Are you able to predict a better way than his way for your life? When this God is overseeing constellations, overseeing Milky Ways, overseeing the universe, knowing all the deepest mysteries of science and wonders of creation, this God who is so glorious, are you able to stand in your short lifespan and judge his ways in your life? Let me tell you what a joy to embrace the mystery of God. And this is just from one thing that the psalmist sees. He says, you are enthroned in the heavens, and because of it, his whole life is nourished. His whole faith is bolstered and fortified in the knowledge of who God is. I, I want to encourage you, something that I have learned from this psalm, is if you ever need of a good sermon, go outside. 
You don't need to come into church every day to be encouraged by the Lord. If you ever need a good sermon, go outside and look at the heavens. Do you know, David learned it in Psalm 19, verse 1 to 2. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. If you're ever distressed, you've got some problem at work, do you know what you do? You put your pen, close your laptop down, you go to the window, you look at the sky and say, Saul, did the sun rise today? If the faithfulness of God has brought forth the sun, don't you think he's going to be faithful to you? You can't sleep at night. You're tossing and turning. You go out to the window. You open up the curtain. You look at the stars and you say, are the stars still in their place? Yeah. If they're still in their place, God's still in his place. Oh, man, it's wonderful to let pre creation preach to you. And let it preach to you when you feel the sun on your face and the warmth of his provision. When you walk and enjoy the coolness of how he has so perfectly provided and balanced all things that we might live for him, that we might know him. This is the joy of what it means to have creation preach to us. And do you see that how, when we see God clearly, everything else becomes clearer. When we lift up our eyes to him, we see who's in charge. We see who is ruling over all these things and where we find our rest. My second point today is that this isn't just a blessing for our distress. It's actually got a major benefit for us in the way that we see ourselves. My second point is, it is only when we see who God is clearly that we understand ourselves clearly. I want to show you how living this way leads to the abundant life. It's only when we see who God is clearly that we understand ourselves clearly. It says in verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. That word in verse 2 of behold, it means in the light of, or the fact that seeing that we, you are enthroned in the heavens, excuse me, that God is king, it does something for this man. And it should do something for you and me too. He says, well, if you're king, that means I'm your servant. By seeing who God is clearly, he sees who he is clearly. And what a blessing that is for us. And that's the principle. Do you know what you'll discover? The more you get to understand God and who he is, the more you'll get to understand who you are and why you're here and what you're living for. You see, our great problem as human beings, I want to remind us today, maybe there's someone listening that you're in this space. You're depressed. You're suicidal. Life has got no meaning for you. Can I say lovingly, join the club. That's how we are born as human beings, the search and quest for meaning. And the problem that we face is sin. Sin in its essence is a distortion of how we see ourselves. It's an overinflation of self. And that's why Satan could think, oh, I could take on God, I could take over his role. He totally overinflated his power and capacity and the way he saw himself he actually saw himself as equal to God. Same with Adam and Eve. When they ate that apple, they thought they could become like God. But I want to say to you this morning, friends, sin is deceptive. It causes an orientation around self and ego so that we don't understand ourselves. That's our problem. That's why there's the gender debate. That's why there's this existential crisis in postmodernism. Because in essence, we are searching for meaning, but the longer we search for it outside of God, the more confused we become. And this is the problem that we face as fallen human beings. We don't understand ourselves. And it's fascinating reading and my little bit of exposure to modern psychology and having a very competent psychologist in the family is that psychology doesn't really have the answers to who we are as human beings. All the major psychologists disagree. All their therapy approaches disagree. And we can map out sort of, sort of symptoms and behaviors of how we think and how we respond to the world around us. But the problem with psychology is that it fails to answer the questions of what really makes us human. Why are we here? What are we living for? 
And friends, we've got a massive, massive interest in psychology today. But let me tell you, I'll preempt the outcome for you. If you're going to study psychology to understand who you are, good luck, my friend, because it hasn't been able to answer the deepest question of your life is why on earth you're here. What are you living for? But you know what happens when you fix your, your, your eyes on the God of this Bible? And you come to him first. You find that as you learn to understand him, you understand yourself. You're no longer lost, like the Bible says. The reason why we're lost in our sin is because we are completely disorientated. We've got no understanding of how we're put together and why we're here. But when you come to an understanding of this God of the Bible, this God of heaven and earth, revealed to us through Jesus Christ, His Son, something wonderful happens. It not only is a place of refuge in your situation, it becomes a place of healing in your inner being. You begin to understand yourself. You get to be put back together and where the overinflation of sin destroyed what it meant to be human, this understanding of who God is and living for Him restores the dignity of what it means to be made in His image. Do you know the beauty of this psalm? Is it shows you if you will lift up your eyes to this God and live for him as the one who's enthroned in heaven, is you'll find you'll discover yourself. Isn't it wonderful that these basic needs are met in knowing who God is? The first basic need that's met in knowing who God is as master is our need for purpose. A servant. Remember, I'm using this example in verse 2 of a servant relating to his master. A servant is never without purpose. He knows why he or she is here. Looking to the hand of the master. Do you know why you are here? Because God has put you here for him. And your mission in your life is not to be so acclaimed by the world and to be admired or to find some sort of perfect job and perfect partner, which don't exist, by the way. No, let me tell you, your perfect purpose is wrapped up in God's command over your life. He said, you know what? When I made you, I made you to look at my hand. I am the leader of your life. I am the one who got plans and purposes for you. You know the joy of being a Christian for me is every morning I wake up and I know why I'm here. I know what I'm after. I know what's motivating and stirring me in my life. Well, that's the second thing. If the first is purpose, the second is motivation. You know, you can know what your purpose is and not be motivated to do it. It's very possible. Let me tell you, it's never the case for the Christian because we want our masters well done. Let me tell you, no servant wants to do sloppily when you're worshiping and serving the God of heaven. Here you are in his presence. You're fixed on his hand. Any flourish of it, you want to be available to it. Any flourish of his hand, you want to be accessible to the command of God over your life. And let me tell you, it's so motivating because you want to do it really well. The thing that motivates the Christian is the pleasure of his or her master. What makes us go for it with all that we've got, even if it's sloppily, even if it's imperfectly, is we're going after the pleasure of the one who made us. It's wonderful. What else does it do? It answers our need for security. Do you know that I, I, I listened to a sermon the other day, and the guy said that Freud, I think it was, said the greatest need for the human being is security. Let me tell you, he's so right. You know how insecure I see myself as? When we see that this God is enthroned in heaven and he's our master, do you know how much security that brings? Who provides for the servant to do his work? The master. Joe steps out. She says... Last year, she comes back from the U.S. She's going, I don't quite know. I get this offer. Don't you love Christian ministry? They offer you a job and say, we can't pay you. I mean, it's just brilliant the way the church you know, decides to, to act in God's people. And all that God says to her is, you seek first my kingdom. Don't you think it's interesting that connection of kingdom is linked to the king? You follow your king, Joe. You look for the flourish of his hand. And all she gets is this command of saying, Joe, I don't want you to look at what money you've got. There isn't any. I don't want you to look at where you're going to be, how it's going to work. I can't give you the job description yet. I'm not going to do any of it. But let me tell you what. You seek first my kingdom. You seek first the flourish of my hand. And all these things will be added unto you. What a joy to see a God who looks after his servants and never calls him to do anything he doesn't provide for. What a joy to be under the protection of the master's house. In, in Roman times, your covering, your legal protection, your sanctuary was your master's goodwill. And let me tell you, this master that rules over us 
loves us. It's not an abusive relationship. It is a relationship that edifies both master and servant. What a joy to feel secure under the loving gaze and command of the master who made us. And the other deepest need for us is our identity. Isn't it wonderful this morning? Come what may, we know who we belong to. It's wonderful. You might be rejected by your father or mother because of Christ. You might lose a business opportunity. You might go off and respond to Joe's call to go to the nations this morning. Who knows what God has got? Let me tell you, there's one place you are always safe. You're always secure. You always know where you belong. It's to this master. And do you know that your prestige and your status and your value comes because you belong to him. Wow. Forget about being known by the president or being known by the queen or being known by the celebrities of this age. The God of heaven knows you and says, you're mine. That's what we need in trial. When the very sense of God's security and or the very sense of our earthly security is being shattered, our earthly identity is being taken away, our sense of purpose and motivation, people might turn our backs on us. We don't care. There is a source coming from heaven as we lift up our eyes to this God who loves us and made, made us and who's enthroned in the heavens that is this constant supply to stand, this constant supply to yield to the flourish of the hand of the master. We are constantly supplied with what we need at a basic human level if we will live like this. But I'll tell you just one more little thing of why this leads to the abundant life for you and me if we will do this. It's because it leads to the blessing of self-forgetfulness. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful that the servant is preoccupied not with himself? What an awful way to live. Do you know what our problem is, why we're so miserable as Christians? It's the effect of sin. It's this bloated, inflated ego. And I'm stealing Keller's book. If you ever want to read a good book, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's short, but it packs a punch. But I want to say this. The reason why we're so miserable is because we're so focused on ourselves. What an awful way to live. Always being self-defensive. Always being self-protective. Always living with self-concern or self-interest. Let me tell you the joy of living this way. And you don't see it at first, but it comes a side effect of living and having your eyes fixed upon the hand of your master is you learn the joy and freedom of self-forgetfulness. You get to live with the freedom of not having to worry about what people think about you, of where your next paycheck's going to come of whether or not you are seeming to be popular. or what, It doesn't matter anymore. You don't have this fighting for your reputation and fighting for your rights and fighting for this and fighting for that. What an exhausting way to live. The joy of fixing your eyes on your master is you get to forget yourself. That's true freedom. And in actual fact, it's true freedom to love. What a joy to come into the easy yoke of your master. A yoke that is light and easy. All that responsibility you carried because of fighting for yourself, let's hand it over to him. Now oh, that's a light way to live. That's abundant life. Friends, I want to appeal to you this morning. Hand your life over to God. Piece by piece. Learn to what it, what it means to say to the Lord, I need you. I am dependent on you 100%. I don't have the resolution of this problem yet, but I have you. I live off you. I look to you. You are the source of all I need. And one glimpse of you gives all the nourishment of faith I possibly need to stand. And not just to stand, but to thrive. Let me tell you, we're not just talking about surviving in the 21st century. We're talking about thriving. There's this joy of the Lord that exceeds all pressure upon our souls. It pushes back with the delight of heaven and the confidence of his love for us. What a way to live. Having our eyes fixed on him. Reject the postmodern lie that says you are your highest authority. It leads to misery. I want to ask you today, perhaps there's someone here who's listening and there's an area where you know you need to submit your life to God. Would you do it? 
backward. You stop trying to lead your own life. It's a disaster. It leads to pain. To submit your life to the Lord completely, utterly, piece by piece, it leads to life. Jesus says, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The thing that fueled Jesus' life and sustained him, that gave him such a kick to be alive, was this understanding that there is this will over his life. His father's hand was in his sight all the time, and a flourish of the father's hand led to obedience in the son. And that relationship was the most wonderful, satisfying, and consoling thing in Christ's life. Is it yours? What is it today that you need to lay before the Lord and say, I am bringing fresh submission in this area? What is it that you are so stressed out by? Will you look to the Lord and say, you know what? I refuse to process this thing horizontally. I refuse to process the thing without seeing it through the lens of who God is. I refuse to live my life without this wonder and securing joy of seeing it through the lens of this glorious God who loves me. Well, verse 3 and 4 is a simple expression. It's my final point, and it's just a statement. Is we are called to depend upon the one who loves us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, the servant says. What is he saying? He's saying, if you're my master, I'm totally dependent on your leadership. I wait for your hand. That's the test of faith. But you see, this psalmist has got to know the hand that's loved him and cared for him. He's learned that this hand has been faithful from start to finish. And this hand is the thing he trusts more than anything else in his life. And I want to say to you this morning, friends, the Lord answered the psalmist's prayer. The nation went through terrible times. But the Lord brought them through each one. And he'll do the same for you. But he's asking you to accept your position this morning as the servant. And to release to him the control of him being master. And you will learn the joy of what it means to fix your eyes upon his hand. And let him take the lead through every season of the soul. You'll discover, like this man did, there is no better way to live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you'd help us see ourselves in the right size. <laughs> Lord, the reason why we, we are so quick to take charge of things in our life is because we really believe we think we are in charge. <laughs> it's like going to the store and saying, I want to speak to the manager. We know where to run to first when we're wanting to speak to the one in charge. And I pray today, Lord, would you show us the blessing of seeing you being the one who's in charge of our lives that the joy of what it means to trust you and to wait for the flourish of your hand, to be so accessible and close, to so delight in being in the presence of the Master, that our lives are so accessible to your leadership. I pray this morning that would be the delight of our souls. Set us free, Lord, from a false view of ourselves today. And bring us to a place of peace which comes through surrender. I know the need is great, Lord. Many are trusting you for basic things. Wisdom to know what to do next. Wisdom for food on the table and finances. Trying to, for health, Lord. There are basic things that are pressing upon your people this morning. But I'm praying today that they would see where their help comes from. And that the joy of being yours today is abundant, Lord, abundantly able to sustain us. 
I pray for the one as well this morning who's never looked to Christ. I, I want to ask you today, who rules over your life? Do you know this Jesus is Lord and Savior? He's not a coffee table book which you just open up when you're interested in putting him back. He's the one that bled and died for you. Is anybody here watching this morning that needs to come to a place that I'm not fixing my eyes on my good works? I'm not fixing my eyes on what people think of me. They think I'm a nice person. Therefore, God thinks I'm a nice person. No, no, this morning I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus, the one who was crucified for my sin. My sin drove his nails into the hands of his, into his hands, it drove the nails. My sin crucified him on that cross, and I'm fixing my eyes on him as my rescuer. That's where you need to start this morning. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody watching this morning that is not right with you, that have not put their total trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, might they do so this morning. Oh, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for showing us the way you're calling us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the Lord in worship, and uh, let's take some time to ponder what he said to us. I want to encourage you this morning not to close your brows and run off, but let's stay engaged. Just because we're not together in person doesn't mean he's any less worthy of our attention. Cheers. 
you with us this morning church before you go i forgot one thing in my announcements we're just going to put joe davies banking details up on the screen for you if you've been stirred to uh, support her please take those down take a screenshot of that and uh, if you don't have time to take that down please contact us at the office and we will let you know um, how to uh, support her in that way i'm going to pray us out i want to encourage you prize gatherings, prize your time with the Lord this week, prize your time in small groups, in Zoom, and let's pray that it won't be long before we can gather again in this building together. Father, we want to thank you that you are the sovereign king over all the earth. You are the Lord of all. You reign in majesty, seated on the throne. And we worship you, Lord. We love you. We choose to surrender our lives to you and put our hope and our trust in you. Help us to see life through your lens, not um, overemphasize ourselves, Lord, not make ourselves so important. Help us to practice self-forgetfulness, Lord, and to set our eyes on you. Lord, may you be exalted in all of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. See you guys again next week.